the gospel, God has designed salvation in such a way that when I wake up in the morning, I know that the Father is for me, the Son is with me, and the Spirit is in me. I have the full power and presence of the triune God with me when I wake up in the morning and I head out. I know, just as Ben said, if God's for me, who's against me? Um, a lot of y'all have to wake up early in the morning too. You need that before you even get the coffee. We have to rest on that every single day. Every single day we have to live in such a way that we need the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We need the full power of His salvation to get through the day. We also need it to fight temptation. That's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning. Here's an idea. In a fallen world, temptation is a fact of life. In a fallen world, temptation is a fact of life. You never outgrow it. There is never a point in your life when you're free from it. And if you think you have, somebody tempted you. Jesus spoke about temptation early and often in His ministry. Christ Himself was tempted, as we know. And Christ told us to daily ask for power in defeating temptation. The problem is most Christians are embarrassed or afraid to admit that they're tempted. Here's just a couple examples. The Sermon on the Mount. We know this one well. Matthew 6, 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Actually, at the very end of his earthly ministry, Luke chapter 22, verse 46. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Y'all forget about that one sometimes, don't you? Temptation isn't an occasional landmine that we sometimes have to encounter. Temptation is a daily challenge that we should plead with God to overcome. I'm tempted every day in some way. I'm tempted to say something I shouldn't. I'm tempted to look at someone the way that I shouldn't. Tempted to stew on something I shouldn't. Tempted to think of myself in a way that I shouldn't. I have never found a sinner yet who was not willing to admit that they were a sinner. But I rarely find a sinner who's willing to admit that they're tempted daily. And that's the first thing that we should know about temptation. I've got four points. I'm, I don't usually give you all points, but here's, a four, here's, our, here's my four points before we even get into the text this morning. One, temptation is a daily threat to your soul. James 1.15, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's a war! If you got desires, and you got eyes, and you got ears, and you got a mouth, you're doing battle. Number two, temptation often comes immediately following a victory. Right after Christ was baptized in Matthew 3, look what the Spirit does. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's when Satan wants you most. Victories can provide the best views of God's grace. And they can also supply some of the weakest moments in our flesh. Number three, we're tempted by almost anything. Money, convenience, sex, gossip, bitterness, jealousy. Here's what Satan says just eight verses after Matthew 4. 
This is Satan. All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You know how I know that you can't measure, you can't use money and power and influence as a blessing of God is because that's precisely what Satan promises to give Jesus if he would but follow him. Here's a common misconception about temptation. It doesn't have to be sexual. It doesn't even have to involve another person. Therefore, the idea that we can somehow wall ourselves off from other people and isolate ourselves and be safe from temptation is a lie. Jesus was in the middle of the dang desert. Satan can find you anywhere and he can use anything to tempt you. There are some of us who are tempted by things and if other people knew we were tempted by that thing, we'd go, I don't get it. I know that just by walking into a store and my wife heads for one aisle and I head for the other. I don't even want to know where she's at. I don't care. If she came in my aisle, she's like, men. Here's number four. Although Satan tempts us for our destruction, God can use temptation to strengthen our faith, our prayer, and our godliness. This morning we're going to read about Joseph's temptation. We're in Genesis chapter 39, if you want to turn there. He's in Egypt, and now he's been sold by his brothers into slavery, but he finds a man, Potiphar, who is now his master, who's paid for him. And as we read, I want you to do two things before we read. I want you to compare this story, Joseph's experience in chapter 39, with two other people in the Bible. Adam's temptation in Genesis 3, and Jesus' temptation in Matthew 4. Joseph's story sounds remarkably similar to both of them. And God wants us to learn something about the essence of sin and faith. Here's the gospel this morning. We can overcome temptation and sin and the power of death because unlike the first Adam, Jesus Christ, our second Adam, endured temptation and did not sin. And he imputes his spotless record and his righteousness to us so that we can be received as sons and daughters of God. Amen. If you'll stand for the reading of God's word. As we read together Genesis chapter 39, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by Moses, and Moses writes this. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is, no, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I had lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Let's pray. Father, blessed is the man or woman whose sins are forgiven whose slate is wiped clean, whose past is behind her. Father, there are so many things for which we have to be thankful. Number one being that we have been saved. But Father, that does not mean that we don't live in a twisted, vile, worldly place. And we need your grace to live and to be strong and to be holy. And you have called us to your holiness. Father, use this text this morning to show us how important it is to imitate your character, your righteousness, and to look to your Son, who was himself tempted, but who never gave in. And now, by virtue of being found in Christ, we can be accounted blameless. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the power that we have today to defeat temptation. And all these things we ask in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. Here's the summary this morning. Joseph enjoyed the favor of God before and after his temptation. And God used his temptation for Joseph's good. And Joseph was able to resist the temptation with his love for Potiphar, his fear of God, and by fleeing from the sin at all costs. So as we saw last week, Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers. Reuben said no. want to, want to defend Reuben there. Judah said, eh, can't make any money off of him if he's dead. Let's sell him into slavery. Great, great family there. He makes his way into the house of Potiphar, who is an officer of Pharaoh, very wealthy man, pretty powerful dude. And Joseph finds favor with God, it says. The Lord was with Joseph, Scripture says. And he became a successful man. Potiphar sees that God is with Joseph, and he trusts Joseph. And it says that he blesses Potiphar because he blesses Joseph. Very often times, don't miss this, God will bless unbelieving pagan people 
simply because of the presence of godly people in their midst. America was not founded as a Christian nation. If you think that, please don't think that. Uh, It's not true. It's not true in the slightest. But I do believe it's fair to say that God has blessed this country due to the many labors of godly people, Puritans, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Methodists. I'm reading a book right now on Francis Asbury. It's just incredible. Baptists. Many godly people have helped in the founding of this nation. And I believe that many of the fruits that we enjoy and the freedoms we enjoy in America are due to the fact that many godly people went before us serving this country. God does the very same thing with families. How many times have we seen a dad in a family do nothing, not even lift a finger in the discipleship of his children, doesn't go to church, doesn't know the Lord, but because of the mother, mother was faithful, mother took the kids to church, mother made sure they said their prayers, because of a faithful woman, 1 Corinthians 7.14 says, the family's blessed. Raise your hand if there are a lot of unbelievers where you work. If you're not raising your hand, you might as well... (laughs) You're a pastor. Um, No, not necessarily. You can be a blessing to your co-workers and to your country and to your company just by seeking Christ and living a life of holiness. Because you found favor with God, God can show favor to those who work with you. God has been showing favor to unbelievers because of the faith of his people ever since Genesis. Now it says that Joseph was a good-looking guy. He was handsome in form and appearance. Potiphar's wife notices his handsome form and appearance. And she basically says this, You're my husband's servant, which means you're my servant. Have sex with me. And listen to what Joseph says in verses 8 and 9. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Let's see. Hold on. Master shows servant favor. Master puts his servant in charge of everything. Master gives servant everything except one thing. Servant is tempted to disobey master and take that one thing. Where have we heard this before? Sounds familiar. Joseph is an Adam-type figure. Once again, the the theme of favor and temptation plays itself out in Genesis, except in this instance, as we know, as we just read, Joseph obeys his master and fears God like Adam and Eve did not. There's a thankfulness and a gratefulness in Joseph that there wasn't in Adam. And that last line is the most telling. Right there, I underlined it. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? There's an odd thing to say, that's kind of an odd thing to say about um, in the situation, because you would think that he would say, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? That's not what he says. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He has more fear for God than he does of Potiphar. And let me tell you, the fact that Potiphar just put him in prison, I think, is God's grace. Here's something to think about. Joseph fears God more than he fears anyone else. His obedience is first and foremost obedience to God. And his sin is first and foremost sin against God. 
When you're at work and your boss tells you to do something and you obey your boss, well, you're obeying your boss, but you're really obeying who? God. When you're at work and you talk behind a co-worker's back, you sin against them, but more importantly, you sin against God. It's either for God or against God. That's our lives. Christians don't obey their authority figures like the world does. Our good works and our obedience are to obey God, and our sin is ultimately a transgression against Him. We live our lives completely before God. Coram Deo in the Latin. Got to show off my Latin every once in a while. Psalm 51. This is after David has a, a run in with temptation that he gives into, right after he, he uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba. This is what he says For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you, God, and you only, have I sinned. Don't miss this. Unless we are motivated by obedience to God, we will never overcome the temptations of the world. Unless we are motivated by obedience to God, we will never overcome the temptations of the world. That means if you're a good worker and your first priority is to obey your boss, but you could give two cents about God, you will find ways to give in to the things that you can There's a popular mentality right now in America, and it sounds godly, and it's some godliness, but if you listen closely, Jesus isn't in it. And unbelievers can talk like this. They'll say, you know, I want to get my life together, and I want to live, I want to live the right way for my children. I want to give them something to, you know, give them an example. As Christians, we think that's a good thing, and it is. But if you listen closely, God's not always in there. I hope that we have something more to live for than our children because if God is not a part of your obedience, your seemingly good parenting is just worldly parenting. Unless we obey God first, every seemingly noble thing we do for our children is secretly selfish obedience, which is really just carrying on our family legacy and our tribe. And the same thing goes with marriage. I am faithful to my wife... I resist sexual temptation for my wife's sake, but I don't just do it for her sake, I do it for God's. Unless I obey God first, hear me now, unless I obey God first, unless I am faithful to God first, unless I fear God first, I'll find secret ways to indulge my sexual sin without my wife knowing. But if I obey God, everything I do internally and externally is to live for Him. Today, according to several statistics, 70% of men between the ages of 18 and 24 look at porn at least once a month. The group that looks at porn the most regularly, and this is according to two sites, is between the ages of 35 and 49. I thought that was interesting. And what a lot of men do in their minds to justify looking at porn is they'll say, well, I'm not harming anybody. I'm not sinning against anybody. It's what I do with my own time. It's a victimless crime. Well, that's not right on two accounts. One, against God and against God only have I sinned. Your sin is no less vile. Your sin is no less heinous just because no one sees it because we know who sees it. God does. 
Number two, if you're married, what you do with your body is your wife's business because your body is whose body? Her body. You are one flesh. When you give into temptation, you're not only sinning against yourself, you're not only sinning against God, you're, only, you're also sinning against your other half. Here's something I want us all to think about. The only real weapon against sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which gives us a fear of God so that we can come to see sin as a personal affront to the God who redeems us, not as a casual, harmless thing we can indulge in private. Men, every time you're tempted to look at porn, every time you're tempted to look at a woman away in a, in a, in a lustful way, you know that you shouldn't, just ask yourself what Joseph asks himself. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Men and women, every time you're tempted to speak foolishly, every time you're tempted to blab out something or gossip against someone instead of speaking truth and love, just quote Joseph. How can I commit this great wickedness and sin against God? God is in the room. God is always there. God is always watching. Sin is anti-God before anything else. It can't be privatized. It can't be domesticated. It can't be diminished. When we give into temptation, we're pointing the barrel at God. And saying, your grace isn't enough. But that's not what Joseph does. He says, Potiphar's given me all this. He trusts me. How could I do this to Potiphar? No. He runs away. And then you notice in the text, he says he doesn't just avoid sleeping with her. He does what? He avoids her completely. I mean, that was awkward in the house sometimes. Hey, uh, Joseph, I cooked lunch. Good. I spent all day on this thing. I, I'm fine. I ate already. Any chance he could to avoid this woman. That's what it takes. Our love of neighbor is our secondary offense against temptation. When we love people, we don't gossip about them. When we love people, we don't try to one-up them. When we love people, we don't treat uh, people like objects. Just a side comment on porn. Porn isn't a victimless crime because statistics show that an enormous amount of porn stars are in some kind, in some way, involved in human sex trafficking. Now, Potiphar's wife doesn't stop there. She doesn't fear God and she sure don't love her husband. So she grabs Joseph's garment, but Joseph does what? He runs away. Says he gets out of Dodge. Verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. He gets out. He flees. The evil of sin and the pervasiveness of temptation in our culture today demands that we take drastic measures to avoid both. You can't just live the all-American life and expect your soul to survive, church. This world wants you to make a lot of money. It wants you to buy a lot of things. It wants you to indulge yourselves. It wants you to indulge every pleasure you have. It wants your desires to come before anyone else's. It wants you to build your own kingdom and not God's. This world wants you to play up, raise up and make your own grown-up toys. It wants you to never grow up. It doesn't promote maturity. This world wants you to have fantasies. It wants you on the internet. It wants you on TV. It wants to indulge every single fleshly pleasure you have. That will destroy your soul 
There is no, well, thank goodness I was born in Covington because if I hadn't, man, I would just be... No, 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 no. Covington is just as harmful to your soul as Atlanta is. In fact, sometimes living in Atlanta could shock our consciences a little bit more than it would living in Oxford. You've got to set up parameters and boundaries in your life to protect yourself from temptation. Here's a thought. Most people in this world, let's, let's flip it around for a second. We keep putting ourselves in Joseph's spot. Everyone, we're listening to this text and we're going, okay, I'm Joseph, so I've got to get out. Here's, well, let's, flip it, let's flip the script a little bit. Most people in this world of their flesh are like potter's wife. They're good when people are around. And then when they're alone, they do what their flesh wants. If not for the grace of God, we are all potter's wives. We have to do everything we can. Like, like Joseph. Get up. No, don't. I don't want it. No, no, no. I don't care what you're wearing today. No, no, fine. Just finding ways to get around the sin. We've got to be like Joseph. We've got to put blockers on our computers. We've got to cut out TV if, it, if, it, if it's... If it's a, a temptation, we've got to cut out certain friends in our lives. We've got to take our Bible to work. We've got to start spending our money differently. Victory over temptation will not come without God's grace and effort. Temptation will either quietly erode your soul or God will use it to sanctify your soul. I remember when I told, we, we were in a small group right after we got married. And we were, it was a really good small group, really open small group. And uh, I was in seminary at the time. We were all, t all the guys were being honest about temptations and about women, looking at women. And I, and I, and I nodded, I was like, yeah, yeah. Kelly, I think Kelly grew up like a lot of young, good Christian girls grew up. She looked at me and she was like, what? And I was like, yeah, I'm tempted. She was like, I mean, I think my wife was looking at me the first time like, I didn't know that when we got married. She thought I was a monster. <laughs> and you laugh, but I think a lot of, lot of godly women, there's some women in here, it's not your fault. You just grew up in a nice Mayberry naive setting where none of the men ever opened up and talked about what they really struggled with. We have a lot of Christian women in churches today who think that every man they meet is Billy Graham. <laughs> Billy Graham wasn't without controversy too. And what happens is the men, in order to appease their wives and for fear of man... Never let the church be the church. Potiphar's wife got mad. She lied. Potiphar obviously believes his wife, and he throws Joseph in prison, which is, he's a, you know, Joseph's a slave, so it's probably good that he wasn't just simply killed. But what happens? Joseph still finds the favor of God. I mean, Joseph, he's in prison, he's just like, God's still with me. There really is nothing in the Christian life quite like joy 
and a clean conscience. Raise your hand if you come out of something. You don't know how you did, but you know that you abstained and resisted temptation by the power of God and you walked out with a conscience you never thought you'd have and you were praising God for it. Raise your hand. Man, I have. Now raise your hand if you did. I'm just kidding. You're not. <laughs> but think about it. Every single person in here has walked out of the same situation in the other way, too. And doesn't feel good, does it? 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, this is the point. The aim of our charge, the aim of our ministry, the aim of our teaching, the aim of our exhortation is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Having a good conscience is part of what it means to be a Christian. The only problem is, as we grow in God's Word, as we, as we grow in the, in the understanding, in the depths of God's grace, He comes to sensitize our consciences even more. I have got 20 times the sensitive conscience I had when I was in, since I'm in college. I had a seared conscience. Today, God is still pricking that conscience. Last Sunday, I said, uh, C-R-A-P behind the pulpit. I would never thought that. I don't think it was a sin to do it. But today I want to, you know, I, I know now I want to, it's not that I just am trying to avoid sin. It's that I'm trying to mold my language and my life and all things toward godliness. Most of the, one of the most unbiblical sayings that goes around in our culture today and it's not a sin to say it. It just takes a little bit more context if you do. Y'all are going, okay, here we go. I might have said this thing. You probably have. I have. God will never give you more than you can handle. That ain't in the Bible. The Bible never says that. In fact, God will often give you more than you can handle so that you have to do what? Call on Him. Ask for His mercy. Tap into His power and His presence so that He gets the victory and you don't. Now, if you know a little bit about the Bible, you know where most people get that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, here it is. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Hold on, that doesn't stop there. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What Paul is saying here is two things. One, we never have an excuse to give into temptation. Temptation doesn't just mindlessly overtake you. You give into it of your will. Number two, God will always provide a way of escape and that way is His grace in Jesus Christ. So the point of the text is not to say that we conquer temptation by our own power. The point of the text is not to say that we only have enough that we can actually handle. The point of the text is to say that we have the ability to call upon God and ask for His power to defeat the temptation. No one who walks out of temptation walks away but by the power of God. Which is, of course, why Jesus is always doing what? Teaching us to pray that we would defeat temptation. Temptations are not a time to simply measure how much 
willpower we have or holiness that resides within ourselves. Temptations are a test by God to see if we can trust in His power and not our own. Here's something to think about. I want everybody to listen. (laughs) In case you weren't. If God tells us, if Jesus Christ tells us to come to God transparently confessing our weaknesses to Him, then wives, be understanding and compassionate when your husband confesses his temptations to you. If God is compassionate and kind with us when we confess our temptations to Him, wives, you can be compassionate and understanding when your husband comes to you with his weaknesses. You're his helper. No man can overcome sexual temptation without the help and without the battling mentality of his wife. And in order to not be sexist, men, when your wife comes to you with her weaknesses, with things that are on her heart and her mind, don't condemn her. Walk with her. Support her. If God wants us to come transparently to Him with our weaknesses and temptations, then you better believe if you're a one flesh union, you should be able to lean on your spouse in your war with temptation. Today at the age of 33, I'll be 34 in 10 days. I get to say that now though. I'm still tempted daily by lust. I am still tempted daily by coveting. I'm still tempted to blame. I'm still tempted to gossip. I'm still tempted to curse. But there is never a day where I am not dependent upon the power of God to defeat my sin. Never. Not one day. And if you're living your life in such a way that you can think you have good days and bad days, some days where you don't need the grace of God, but other days you need to ask Him, you're living life in the wrong way. Every single day you have to be tapping into God's power. Our temptations this week, our temptations in our lives here in Georgia in 2020, Our temptations should drive us constantly to the one who was tempted himself and yet who never sinned. Every day. He's the source of our power. There is never victory over temptation without looking to the grace of Jesus Christ. And I call all of us to that this morning. Temptation can erode your soul but it can also be the means by which you come to see your depravity and come to see the glory of Jesus Christ and your need for Him, which is something we all need. And if we have not done this this morning, I call you to do so. Let's pray. Father, Jesus went before us. He obeyed where Adam did not. And he did immeasurably more than Joseph ever could. Father, let us look to the godliness and example of your servant Joseph, knowing that the battle of temptation is not simply about waking up every day and hoping for the best. It is about intentionally doing war with the forces of darkness.
Father, we cannot find godliness. We cannot find victory over our flesh in temptation without looking unto you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the resurrection. We know that because Jesus conquered death, we can conquer our temptations. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name.